Thank you, Richard, and good evening, everyone, and thank you all for coming out. If you want to put us up on the screen, please. That moment whenever you worry, is the technology going to work? We've been looking over the last three weeks, and I stress it is a wide brush. It is not a detailed look at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking at it from three, um, primarily from one perspective, and that is the book of Revelation. The reason being that we are studying the book of Revelation in our home study groups, and the chronology that I am using to develop a structure is Revelation. I'm using it as each event occurs in the book of Revelation, then I am putting it onto the timeline which I am constructing. We have looked over the last couple of weeks at a couple of the topics. We looked on the first night primarily on the topic of the millennium, and we spent quite a bit of time looking at what lies ahead for us. And the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, will reign, physically reign, on planet Earth for a period of 1,000 years. Again, we looked at the book of Revelation. Last week, we broadened it a bit, and we took what, if you like, is the main structure of the book, a major part of the book, which is covering the period of the tribulation. And we looked at how the tribulation was divided into two sections, the beginning of sorrows, and then we looked at the great tribulation. And then we also looked at, very briefly, at the great white throne judgment. So this evening, I want to focus our attention on two last passages. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also the eternal state. And if you were looking at the book of Revelation and looking at it in a chronological order, the two areas colored yellow, the very fine line down the middle, and also the block to the right is where we are focusing upon this evening. If you come to visit us in our house, you will see this on our lounge wall. You may wonder what it is. It is a piece of Japanese lacquerware in the form of a picture. It has a special significance for Audrey and myself, because when we were married for 40 years, we went to Japan. And when we were in Japan, we decided we would purchase for ourselves something to commemorate our 40th wedding anniversary. And we purchased this screen. It's about that size, about that size, and it's framed and on the wall. And it does two things, if not three things for me, and I hope for Audrey as well. The first thing that it does is it takes me back. It reminds me. It reminds me of that day 45, nearly 46 years ago, when I stood where Richard is at the moment, waiting for my bride to arrive. And I can vividly remember my elderly grandmother sitting right behind me and in one of those granny stage whispers saying, she's not coming. (laughs) I thought, thanks, granny. But as was the prerogative of every bride, my, my, my future wife was late. So it took me back. 
but it also reminds us of a future. You think, why? Well, because this little picture here, believe it or not, artistically portrays, if you like, a river flowing down through the middle of a golden landscape with a tree on each side. And that took me right into the book of Revelation. And it took me to that point where we're going to be looking at this evening. And every time I look at this, I look at what we had and the experience, and I look forward and I think, what is heaven going to be like? And I use the term heaven in the broadest sense as an eternal future, an eternal state. And we will be discussing it in a little bit more detail. Perhaps you have had to move. Maybe even you have emigrated or moved abroad. And if you're like me or anybody else, you spend a huge amount of time trying to determine where you are actually going. Even if I'm going on a holiday, my family used to say, Dad's gone into travel mode. I had this briefcase of stuff with me, and I wanted to know every detail. And if we were moving house, if we were going to another location, we'd want to know where we're going. And the reality is that our eternal home, our eternal home, most people know it in the most vague of terms, I'm going to heaven. And while that is a lovely thought, where are you going? What's it like? What have you committed your life to? Where are you going to end up? And the Lord Jesus Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ said this, and we come back to it later, he's actually making a statement of marriage. I go to prepare a place for you. And the place that the Lord Jesus Christ prepares for us is a city. Not just heaven, but it's described in great detail. And I have put up here on the screen passages from Revelation, the last couple of chapters. And I just want you to read with me initially, and then we'll go through them step by step, picking out some of the salient points. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And one of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of Christ, or the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Bride, wife, city. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure this city. 
its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it is wide, and he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. That's about 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles in length and as wide, 1,500 miles high, and 1,500 miles wide and long. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, taking you back to that picture, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the street and on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name and it will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a light lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give him light and they will reign forever and ever. That's where you're going. That's where you're ending up. We're going to a city. So let's look at the passage in a little bit more detail. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation, the creation of the new heaven and the earth comes after the tribulation, after the Lord's second coming, after the millennial kingdom, after the final rebellion, after the final judgment of Satan, after the great white throne. All of that we've talked about. And now we come right to the very end. And we come to a, a new heaven and a new earth. And as we look at it, we read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, a couple of references. As for the new heaven and the new earth that I make, it shall remain before me. It's eternal and created by God. And then he goes on to say, and I will create a new heaven and a new earth and former things will not be remembered or come into your mind. Isn't that nice? All that past will not be remembered. And we are waiting for this new heaven and new earth in which righteousness will dwell. So it's created by God, the past is gone, and righteousness will dwell. And then he says the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's where we are. And in Revelation we read in chapter 20, we just read very briefly last week, I didn't draw your attention to it, but he says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And then in Second Peter we read, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. You think that's going to happen? Yeah. A new heaven, or the Bible says in places, new heavens and a new earth. Some people believe that this whole place will be completely wiped out, redrawn. Other people will believe that it will be transformed. In that sense, it will become new. And so therefore, this old planet in which we're living, that is facing all of the difficulties that it raises, be gone. And a new heaven, and a new earth. And then he goes on to say, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
Now, I could take an evening and talk to you about the significance of Jerusalem. We haven't got that. But you do know, if you have any biblical knowledge at all, the significance of the city right throughout the whole Old Testament. But here it's a holy city, and it's called the New Jerusalem. What's it going to be like? Well, if you look at the names throughout the Bible for this new city, you get a clue. It's a tabernacle of God. Years ago, we studied the tabernacle. It's called the heavenly Jerusalem. It's called the holy city. It's called the celestial city. It's called the city of God. It's called the city four square, and it's called New Jerusalem. And it's this cube shape, 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500, literal, who knows? But it is described in great detail, great color, precious stones, and a huge building, if you like, and it comes down from heaven. But it's described in Revelation as the city four square. If you look at it, you'll see the city was laid out like a square, in length as wide and high as is long. In other words, it was a perfect cube of 1,500 miles in our modern measurements. So what? Well, for us, that doesn't mean very much. But whenever John read this or saw this, and others read it, it took him right back into the Old Testament. Because when you go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or into the temple, the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube, gold. And so therefore, what he is saying is that we are going to a city which is the abode of God. It is the Holy of Holies. God is there. He goes on to say more. And I'm just picking out phrases. It's part of the new heaven and the new earth. It's a holy city. It contains the glory of God. If you have a pure and radiant light, it will have no temple. It will be eliminated by the glory of God and it will have open gates. And then we move on. And he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Now, dwelling with God, the city, is an enormous theme throughout the Bible, right throughout it. And if you look right throughout the whole of the Old and the New Testament, you have right from the time of the patriarchs through the tabernacle, the temple, the exile, whenever people came back and they tried to build the temple, or they did rebuild the temple, and, and God did not dwell in the temple, to the Lord Jesus Christ who came into our presence and dwelt amongst us, right to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right throughout the history, there is this, can I use a word, I hope you understand what I mean, this desire of God for man and him to have a dwelling relationship. That's what the Garden of Eden was for. God didn't create that there so that he could just play little games as some agnostics and atheists have described it, playing little games with mankind. God wanted a relationship with mankind. He wanted to walk with them, talk with them, dwell with them. And unfortunately, sin brought an end to that. And so it says that God will dwell there and we will dwell with him. You starting to get the picture? What's it going to be like? There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
Remember, the past is gone. And so therefore, if you're to summarize, the new Jerusalem will have no more sea. A number of people have said to me, that's disappointing. I love the sea. I was at the seaside yesterday. It was fantastic. You're missing the point. No more sea is not referring here to a physical seabed. Because in the ancient times, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that which was evil and chaos was limited and restricted to the sea. When the Lord Jesus Christ was cast as swine, he cast him into the sea. And you find the imagery there that the sea is the tempest and all that is wrong. No more sea. No more death. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more of the former things. Again, it's repeated. No more thirst. No more tears. And do you know the one that resonates more with me than any of those is God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, I know there's, if you like, a, a poetic nature to this, that there will be no crying in heaven. But look at the way it's phrased. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Who was the last person wiped a tear from your eye? What degree of intimacy do you require to have somebody to have that compassion and care for you that they actually physically take their thumb and they wipe a tear from your eye? In my case, it was my mother. I don't know who it is for you. But that intimacy that you have with God, not only is he dwelling with you, not only is he dwelling with you in this no more, as I have listed, but he is dwelling with you in this intimate relationship. And they will reign forever and ever. The Lord Jesus Christ said that where I am, you may also be. I go to prepare a place for you. I took this photograph yesterday morning at Dundrum. And I stood there on that beach and I looked out and I thought, if this is what earth is like, what is heaven going to be like? The beauty, the majesty. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am going to go and prepare a place for you. And then you will see New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, to, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Prepared as a bride. Repeat it again. I will show you the bride, and even more emphasis, I will show you the wife of the Lamb. Now we're moving away from the city to the bride, but the two of them cannot be isolated. Because when I look at that picture on our wall, it not only takes me back to a memory, but it also takes me to that place, that city, that location, and also to a future place, weddings. There you are, every culture across the globe has a different style of wedding. And I'm sure you, like me, and the billions across the world turned, tuned into the, the royal weddings. Colossal number of people. But I want to take you back to a wedding, not in our day, 
but as it was in the days of the Lord Jesus. Because the significance of it in relation to our topic is so important. First of all, you are betrothed or betrothal. In other words, engaged. But the engagement was a binding engagement. It wasn't just something that you say, we'll get engaged and then oh, I'll give you the ring back tomorrow. No, it was much more than that. It was actually a contractual arrangement in which money was exchanged. The father paid, the father paid. In other countries today, it's the family of the bride pay, but not in the Jewish tradition. The father paid the price for the bride. And then after that, you, the groom would leave after meeting with his bride, and he said, I will go home and get a house ready. You can see where this is going. I am going to go and get a place ready. And then the groom is expected to return. The groom is expected to come back at some stage. But nobody knows when the groom is going to come back. The groom doesn't even know. The groom has to come back whenever he's instructed to come back by the father of the bride. And so therefore he is waiting to return. And then whenever the bride comes, believe it or not, it's usually at night time. Whenever the groom comes, it's usually at night time. And when he arrives to welcome his bride, he blows a trumpet and shouts. And the bride who has been waiting to get ready, hears the groom coming, has all her clothing, everything ready. The, bride, the groom comes, blows his trumpet, and then there's this mass party as they leave. They all leave together. And they go back to the home of the father where a house has been prepared or a room has been prepared. And the groom takes the bride back to his father. And when they return to the father's house, they have a wedding ceremony. They get married. They exchange vows, if you like, in our terminology. And then they have a wedding supper. But between the wedding ceremony and the wedding supper, the young couple would retire in private privacy and consummate the marriage. And then they would emerge as man and wife, and there would be a great celebration. And then everybody would say, they're married. Well, so what? But if you put it all together, you get this. You get the groom coming for his bride, he returns to the father's house. He is away for a period of time. The bride, the bride gets ready. The groom returns. He takes his bride. He returns with his bride to the father's house. The marriage vows and all are exchanged in privacy. Or, or, the marriage vows are exchanged. The marriage is consummated in privacy. And then there's the emergence and the wedding supper. And there is a great, great feast. And so if you take the timeline that we have, and it was from Revelation, and if you take what I have just told you and place it on top of that, you get a picture like this here. And I'm going to make a statement that well, some of you will agree with and, and some of you won't agree with. We said that that would happen at the very outset of this study. And what you have here is a picture known as the pre-tribulation that the Lord Jesus Christ would come for his church at the start of the tribulation. 
He said, I will go and come back for you. But let's deal with it in a wee bit more detail. How do these phases each apply to, to you and me? Well, first of all, you've got the betrothal, the engagement. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ. And in Ephesians, Christ loved the church to present her to himself. And we have this picture of an agreement, a contract, and not only an agreement and a contract, but we also have the sealing of the Holy Spirit, if you read through the Bible, that guarantees that contract. Betrothed. And during that period, there were no sexual relationships. They both remained chaste. They didn't have relationships with anybody else. And the bride's job was to get herself ready. Now, you ladies who have been married or mums or dads who have had brides in their house, it's a nightmare. I don't know how many months we looked for a pair of shoes that would match a dress, and it wasn't my dress, so I just knew Months. But the bride in the Bible is encouraged to be pure and chaste and to get herself ready because the groom will return after he has been to prepare a place for you. He goes back to his father's house. And the Lord Jesus Christ in John 14, when he says that, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. See the picture? He's there. We're here, the bride of Christ, getting ourselves ready. And then the Father says, the Father almost said, right to the groom, go get your bride. The groom didn't know when it was to happen. The bride didn't know when it was to happen. The Father knew when it was to happen. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, concerning that day regarding his return, no one knows but the Father only. So stay awake. So just in case you thought that stay awake that you saw whenever you came in was to keep you awake during the sermon, no, stay awake. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when Jesus Christ is going to come back in. And if anybody tells you they do, they don't. If anybody says they've got a special revelation or a special prophecy or a special book or a special whatever, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I don't even know when it is. So don't fall for that one. But he's coming back. And the bridegroom will arrive. And this is what the Lord Jesus says. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And then Paul says as well, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord Jesus Christ will come down and there will be a loud trumpet call. And then you have the marriage. In Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It's not like Irish linen. 
There's one square inch of this linen in Northern Ireland. If you want to see what your wedding dress is going to look like, go to the Lisburn Linen Museum. And behind plate glass window, there's a square inch of rare, fine linen, which can't be reproduced today. That's what it's going to look like. Pure, fine, married. And then you have the consummation, and then, and Paul says a very strange thing in Ephesians 5 about that relationship that occurs between the bride and Christ, and I can't go into it because Paul doesn't even understand it. But it's a binding relationship. And then you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when that happens, then you have the dwelling place of God is with man. We go as a bride, his church, universal, and we are met by the groom, and then we are taken to a sitting. There's two times God says it's done. Once on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ said, it is finished. The redemptive work is complete. And whenever you come to Revelation, you have it repeated again. And he says, he was sitting on, seated on the throne and said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There's going to be a city prepared for you. And not are you going to go there as an anonymous individual with a map under your arm or a GPS and try to figure a way around it. No. You're going as a bride. Think of the intimacy. You're going to your home. Think of what has been described and I have only been able to touch upon it with you and what lies ahead. I stood there waiting, waiting. My granny was telling me she's not coming. But do you know something? At the end of the aisle of history, whenever you're standing there looking, your groom will be standing waiting at the end of the aisle of history. He'll have come and collected you as his bride. He will have taken you to the Father's home. He'll stand there in ceremony and you'll be brought in and you'll be brought in the garments that you have made. Because Revelation says that the wedding garments are made by us. Do you know sometimes we have a really bad perception of the church. Sometimes all we see are the stains and the dirt around the tail of the dress and the little tears and the rips. God looks upon us as a bride for his son. Perfect, holy, and we will be with him for eternity.
And that's where you're going. You're going to a destination, but a destination with a relationship that you nor I can even begin to fathom or understand.